bear walks into a restaurant, sits down at a table, wait staff shows up and, and says, hey, can I get you something? Hands the bear a menu. The bear looks at it and says, yes, I would like orange juice. Waiter says, yeah, I'm happy to get that to you, but I, I have one, one question. Why the long pause? And the bear said, I was born with them. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to another episode of the MGC podcast where we desire to go deep into the Christian faith. My name is Alex Portillo and I am your host. On today's episode, we are talking with Pastor Johnny Moore about the Christ Hymn in Philippians chapter 2. We will be discussing the attitude of Christ, what it means for Christ to have made himself nothing, and we will be talking finally about what does Christ's humility teach us about how God relates to us. Thank you for joining us today. Sit back, relax. And enjoy. I believe that the example of Jesus being what it was created a conscience that, though frequently forgotten, um, or perhaps not forgotten, though frequently pushed aside in the Western world, has fundamentally changed the way that we think about ethics. What does Paul mean when he says that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped? What does this say about the attitude of Jesus? This passage really seems pretty straightforward to me. It starts uh, saying that Jesus, who you know is in the form of God, had equality with God, he did not consider it something to be held on to. And in fact, the Greek here, when we when we hear it, we say, a thing to be grasped, something that is that is grasped hold of. But in the Greek, it's actually a, a noun. And so it's it's really a, it's like a valuable thing. It's like the kind of thing that one would grasp, you know, and our language kind of struggles to have a, a noun that corresponds with that. And so, you know, essentially what we're hearing here is Jesus and his stature his, his hierarchical position, his authority, his dominion, his seat as prince over the angels, prince over the universe in relation to the Father and being of the same substance as the Father, living in Trinity, in unity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, that this close communion as graspable, as valuable, as of ultimate value as it is, 
Jesus does not value it so highly that he is unwilling to let it go. So the most valuable thing he is willing to trade. The most important thing in the universe, Jesus is willing to trade for a higher purpose. He doesn't consider it something uh, that needs to be held on to. Rather, it can be released. I think that this says something truly astounding about the nature of Jesus and the attitude of Jesus. Because even as I went through that description, I began to think of illustrations of things that I am unwilling to let go of. The way that I am unwilling to let go of the wealth in my life. As I'm recording this, I'm sitting in my closet because it's the best soundscape in my house, and I'm looking over at all of my shirts, all my button-downs, you know? And I hold on to those things because if I just had one shirt and I wore the same shirt to church every week, would people think less of me? I don't want people to think less of me, so I, so I hold on to all these shirts, and, and I'm going to buy more soon. I think about uh, the intimacy that I have with close friends and how if I begin to feel as though I'm being replaced, I become resentful. I become angry. I may lash out at a friend. I remember in junior high, one of my best friends started dating. And so my other friends and I, we consorted against him. You know, we, we would get together and complain about how our friend was leaving us for, for some girl. And that is so human and it is so innate, I think, to the experience of humanity that for me to imagine having the kind of attitude that would say the deepest and richest relationship imaginable, I'm willing to let that go. The greatest wealth and comfort, I'm willing to let that go. The fullest freedom to do what I will and what I want, I'm willing to let that go and be bound into something so much more limited. That kind of attitude is really almost impossible for me to imagine, and yet that is the attitude of Jesus. How did Jesus make himself nothing by taking on the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness? I think that the term nothing here is one that can be quite misleading. The term nothing, when we hear that, we think about our own internal value as people. And we so frequently have self-talk that speaks nothingness into our lives. You are worthless. You are nothing. You're a worm. You've messed up. You really blew it. And of course you did because you're nothing. And so when we maybe first read this passage and we see Jesus becoming like a human, like nothing, it kind of reinforces this idea that we tell ourselves in our worst moments that we are not valuable. But I don't think that this is actually what scripture is teaching, even though it might seem logical on the face of it. What I believe scripture is, is teaching is kind of a relative nothingness. It's an immeasurably smallness in comparison to an immeasurably greatness. So the verses before that we just talked about, where we talk about Jesus having 
equality with God, that level of greatness in comparison to humanity is like it's going from a from a Ferrari to a Pinto. It's going from five stars, you know, for every meal to to fast food. It's it's going from something so great that the the lesser thing is is almost nothing in comparison. And you know, we really and you know, we really see this. We just came through Christmas not too long ago and I always consider the passage where it says that he was wrapped in swaddling cloths. And we think about swaddling cloths now in a certain way. You know, they're a snug blanket that keeps the baby feeling secure and safe. But in the ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, that was not the case. Swaddling cloths were not just a warm blanket. Swaddling cloths, according to a historian, Pliny, swaddling cloths were body sculpting body forming, maybe almost uh, ropes would be a better way of thinking about swaddling cloths. They would, they would be used, you would swaddle a baby to make sure that the baby's body formed in a way that was correct, in a way that was societally um, appreciated, as some tribes, uh, some people in some places in the world, um, when they're young and their skulls are soft, they'll, you know, maybe use a board or, or something to, to flatten the skull so that it will be better for various kinds of, of manual labor. So in this way, swaddling cloths were used to make sure that a baby had the proper form. So, once again, we think about God choosing to become human at this time, being made in human likeness, being limited to this form, and not just limited to this form, but being limited to this place in history when, when science and physiology and anatomy were so poorly understood, and Jesus coming down to be forced into this body, this shell that is so limited, like that is nothing in comparison to what Jesus had in his former realm of existence, whatever whatever exactly that looked like. Jesus makes himself nothing by becoming this limited thing that is a human person in Palestine in the first century. Lately, I have been thinking a lot about what it means for Jesus to be a humble servant, especially because we are going through the book of Philippians right now. And after uh, our study this past weekend on the Christ hymn, I asked myself, what if Jesus would have come as a demanding king instead of a humble servant? And I know that can go many ways, but what if when James and John mother came to Jesus asking for her sons to be the first in the kingdom, Jesus would have been like, hey, congratulations, you were the first to get here. They're going to get it. Or if he said, well, if your sons are able to prove themselves by getting X and X done, then they can have that position. Or what if uh, in John 13, when they're the upper room, Instead of Jesus washing their feet, Jesus demanded 
them to wash his feet. And I wonder if Jesus would have left an example of of a demanding king rather than a humble servant. I wonder how our response to him would be different. I wonder what kind, how differently the Christian ethic that Christ would have left us would be. You know, that, that question and that musing evokes a lot of thoughts from me in a lot of different directions. I think the first one is kind of theologically what that would say and what that would mean about who God is because Jesus says that he comes to reveal the Father, right? So in a, in a big picture sense, and this almost evades this almost evades the question really, but if that were the case, I think the fabric of our universe would be entirely different than it is now. Human existence would be called into question. I, I think it's unlikely actually that we would exist at all because I don't think that the Father revealed in a Christ like that would have allowed human existence to continue on. It seems like if God were a God of the first shall be first and the last shall be cast out, then when Lucifer turns against God, God would have called it. You know, there wouldn't be the great controversy. And the result of that would be that the universe would live in fear uh, of a God who is a demigod. So theologically, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that it's just like, like, whoa, like, what would that, what would that say? What would that mean? So that's one space uh, where my mind, where my mind goes. You have any thoughts on that? Man, I, I think that what you just said is very challenging. <laughs> Because I think that if Jesus would have left an example of the first shall be first, the last shall be last, and, and, and you can demand it, I feel that it would give Christians a green light to go after power and position. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's definitely, I think as far as, as, far as like practical, practical implications, I think that's 100% true. I think that what Jesus reveals to us, what Jesus reveals to humanity, what the cross reveals to humanity is that power is actually the opposite of what humans think power is. So for Jesus and for the Father, for the Holy Spirit, we see a way upward that is not a way of clawing over people but rather a way of self-sacrifice. Um, power is in the breaking of your body for another. Power is in the, the giving of bread. Power is in, you know, something that's, that's so, much, um, so much more sacrificial. Where the, the human system of power, what comes naturally to us ever since the fall, has been what acquires for me the greatest esteem of my colleagues, the greatest comfort, the greatest wealth, the greatest prowess on the battlefield. That is what what power is. So I think that if Jesus had underscored that divine power is in fact the same kind of power as human power, just on a grander scale, much like Zeus uh, and the Greek gods or or so many other theories of deity 
from the ancient world, uh, I, I think that you're absolutely right. I think that we as Christians would not just seek power and control from our sinfulness, but we would lean into seeking power and control because it would, it would be deified. It would be favored. And institutions like slavery uh, would not only still exist, but would be celebrated in Christendom. Institutions uh, like the oppression of the poor, the oppression of other races, the oppression of the other, those institutions would be celebrated because any time that the strong proved their strength over another group, uh, that would be living out the Christian ideal. Any time that we used our funds, our resources to secure our good at the cost of another, uh, it would be something to celebrate rather than something to repent of. And the world would be a considerably more horrible place. I believe that the example of Jesus being what it was created a conscience that, though frequently forgotten, um, or perhaps not forgotten, though frequently pushed aside in the Western world, has fundamentally changed the way that we think about ethics as a, as a world. Would, would things that are valued by other philosophical schools that are descendants of Western thought, would those things be valued in the same way that they are now if it weren't for the example of Jesus? and the way that he sacrificed, would there be any value? Or would we, like Plato, set up, set up states and say that the perfect republic is one in which the philosopher kings and the warrior class decide um, what everyone else should do and what everyone else can become? And because of Jesus, I believe, that narrative did not win the day. So yes, I, I think that it would be a very sad world if Jesus had come as a demanding king who, who loved the strong and pushed down the weak, who rewarded the power for their powerfulness and gave them more power rather than rewarding the servants for their kindness and giving them more responsibility. It's interesting you mentioned Plato because... A few years ago, I, when I read through The Republic by Plato, he builds this entire argument of the reason why there needs to be a philosopher king. And the reason he gives is a philosopher logically will come to the conclusion that power is not good, that power and authority and you wielding all of it is not good. And only a philosopher having this knowledge will be able to rule justly because he will not rule out of selfish ambition as opposed to someone who is completely selfish or someone who just wants power because they want to be at the top. But there really isn't a ethic that says that drives behind it that defines what power is like for Plato the only reason power is bad is because someone who has too much of it is always going to abuse it. But he doesn't really define, well, what is real power? And something that 
I find interesting is that when we go back to Genesis and we see what the serpent tempts Adam and Eve with, to some degree, there is a temptation of power there because you receive an ability that you did not have before. That's what he's, the serpent is tempting them with. But do they really know what this power is going to entail? And in fact, they do receive it, but by receiving it, they become cursed. And there lies in something in the Christian story that power is not necessarily something that benefits us. Sometimes power is something that absolutely cripples us. But what we see in this story of the cross is that true power is not found in omnipotence, which we love to attribute to God. But power is found in despite having physical ability, you serve and you die on a cross. That despite wielding like the genie in in Aladdin, all power, despite having all of that, you use it for the benefit of others rather than for the building up of yourself. And I think a lot about ancient mythology and about how ancient civilizations often found their justification in behaving a certain way based on the stories of their gods. Their gods were born out of blood. Therefore, they live by blood. But then in the story of Christianity, the the earth is not founded on blood, but the earth is founded on God's generosity. And I think that that says something about an ethic that we live by. Like in Matthew chapter 18, when the mother of James and John come to him and they say, hey, can we, can we be the top of the kingdom? Like Jesus tell, responds to them, to all the disciples when they're angry that the disciples had the audacity to, to try to beat them to the punch. Jesus says to them like, yo, kings on this earth, they have power and they rule, but it shall not be with you. Not so with you. Like their lies for Christianity, like real power. Power is not the ability to simply do something. Like power is the fact that although you have it, you use it to build someone else rather than building yourself. And that's real power. Not the ability to build your own self, but to build someone else. You know, when you ask the question about, you know, how the human response would be different to Jesus, I think that also in kind of a practical personal way, I think that rather than falling in love with Jesus because of his generosity and his care for us, we would become enamored with Jesus because of the envy that we would have for him because of his godlike attributes. It's the difference between how I love my mother and how I'm a fan of Taylor Swift, some politician, you know, uh, some movie star. You know, you see them and because they have something so much more, you know, you may not, you don't actually know them. You don't know that they care about you. In fact, you know that they don't care about you, but you follow them because um, they have a, a gravity that comes from power. 
um, and I'm being a little cynical. I know, you know, for, for musicians or actors, maybe they create beautiful things and, and, you know, you love what they stand for or, you know, whatever. But I think that our response to him fundamentally would be one that is enamored with his power rather than enamored with his heart. What does God's response to Jesus' humility and obedience teach us about how God relates to us? I think there are two things here. First, I think that the response that God gives to Jesus' humility and obedience first indicates how much value God the Father puts on the human person, on human life, on the human family, on humanity throughout history, that when we talk about God's relating to us, that the fact that Jesus dying so that we could be reconciled to the Father, so that we could live in perfect unity, perfectly restored, you know, harmony and integrated relationship, the, the fact that the Father prizes that so highly and that it is that uh, action that is the evidence that makes Jesus the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue acknowledge, you know, that he is Lord, that places an immense value on human life a value that I cannot even begin to imagine. The father is a master painter, a master sculptor, but not just a painter or a sculptor, but an animator, one who brings life into existence. And that creation is so incredibly valuable, even just part of it. One creation, uh, one small little marble floating in space amongst all the other marbles amongst all the other life, wherever it is, however it's held, whatever life in the universe really looks like, that, that this little space, this little sliver of creation is so valuable to God. That is, that is something beyond my understanding, and it's humbling and it's magnificent. The second thing, when I think about how God's Response: how the Father's response to Jesus' humility and obedience really lifts Jesus up into a place of honor, it shows me an example of what life in heaven is going to be like. The second thing that I take away from God's response to Jesus is an example of how God wants to relate to us. When you look at scripture and you look at the, the writings of Paul, for example, and, and he says that you, writing to the church in Corinth, will judge angels, right? Uh, when you read Revelation and it talks about the followers of Jesus, you know, being set up in positions of honor, this hymn to Christ is, is an example to us saying, this is what you can aspire to on some level. You as younger siblings, brothers, sisters of Jesus, 
you can look forward to this same this same kind of existence in heaven which of course is kind of uh it's almost ironic because you know here we talk about how power um, is one of self-sacrifice and then it comes with honor you know and it and it seems almost backwards you know why why would you self-sacrifice or or how is it i guess that self-sacrifice can lead to you being in a space that requires so little sacrifice because you are so highly esteemed. What it reveals is that those who are willing to sacrifice, those who are willing to give deeply, to give generously, are the ones who God sees as worthy of honor. It's the ability to sacrifice, the inner readiness and longing to secure the good of others is Dallas Willard's definition of love. The ability, the inner readiness and longing to secure the good of others is the prerequisite to holding authority over others. And so, so this example shows us, hey, when you, when you live this out, when you allow your character to be formed in this way, then God, the Father, the Holy Spirit, the Son, the universe, you know, will recognize in you the, the kind of character that, that makes the stuff of greatness in heaven. And, and you can come to a place um, where you will finally be at home and you will be at peace and you will, and I don't even know what this means, but you will, you will have a place of rulership, of, of leadership, of authority, of, of grandeur, of greatness that, that is beyond, again, what we can imagine. So I think God wants to relate to us coming back to the fundamental question, God made humanity to be princes and princesses, to be royalty in creation. That's what God created us to be. And so Jesus comes and reinstates by his actions the royalty that humanity was meant to have. And so we see through then the way that that plays out, um, that God is going to restore that that status as as royalty in in creation and in the world that we have and um, in the universe that we're a part of that's beautiful to me thank you for joining us today pastor johnny i'm pastor johnny see you next time thank you for joining us for another episode of the mgc podcast i really enjoyed today's episode did you if you did, share it. Share it with someone. Share it on Instagram. Share it on Facebook. Send the link to a friend. And if you haven't done so yet, go to iTunes and leave us a review or follow us on Instagram. I know that these things seem very small, but it's something that costs you absolutely nothing and it helps us and it helps others find us. Well, my friends, till next time grace and peace. Man, these are uh, some, these are some high class, highbrow, uh, uh, humorous moments. <laughs> we really need to, we need to add more jokes to our repertoires though. We do. We do. Know we do that that's how that's that's to be 
you're ordained, good. so you need to be having ministers. more. You are Damn. ordained, so you need more. You need more. And I need more to get ordained. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. That's where the money is. 